0: me, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever lost something of value? You know, something that carries a lot of value to to you. you. You will look high, you will look low, trying to find that which carries a lot of value if you've lost it. Well, could you imagine losing a child? happened to my wife? When she lost our youngest daughter, Vanessa, it was about five years ago, my wife was shopping for clothes for our daughters. She was with Michaela, our oldest at the time, was six, and and Vanessa was three, and they were shopping there at a department store. As my wife is looking at clothes on the rack, she looks down, there's Michaela, but there's no Vanessa. Now, she's not too concerned because she just saw her. And Vanessa tends to be a wanderer. And, you know, she gets bored pretty quickly and she'll just go check some things out. And so my wife walks around to the other side of the rack, doesn't see her. There's an employee nearby. So she asks, hey, have you seen a little three-year-old girl? employee says no. Now she's getting a little concerned. And she's looking around, doesn't see her. She goes to another employee and then another and then another. And when they all said they hadn't seen her, that's when panic kicked in and the employees decided in this department store we're locking the store down, and that's what they did. You begin to think the worst kinds of things when this happens, like God forbid, your daughter kind of wanders out the door, perhaps somebody takes her, you know, you, you, you begin to worry. And so here's this store locked down. Everybody's looking for Vanessa. After several minutes go by what felt like an eternity to my wife, one of the employees comes over to my wife with a smirk on her face. And she takes my wife to one of the racks. And she points to the ground. And out of the bottom of the clothes rack are these tiny little feet. That's right. My daughter is hiding in the clothes rack. She's getting a, she's getting a kick out of not only scaring her mother to death, but having an entire department store looking for her. <laughs> She's thinking they're playing hide-and-seek, and she's winning, big time. Uh, well, as you can imagine, my wife was so relieved when she saw those little feet, and she grabbed our daughter, and she whispered in her ear, if you do that again, you will not see the age of four. <laughs> but boy, they had a celebration right there in that department store. My wife was so happy. Why? Well, it's obvious. Her daughter that she values big time was lost, but now she was found, worthy of a celebration. Today we're continuing in our series in the book of Luke, and today we're going to be looking at one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. We're going to look at the entire 15th chapter. It's all about the lost and found parables Of the Bible. You know why it's one of my favorite? It's because it gives us a picture into the very heart of our God. He sent his son Jesus into this world on a rescue mission to seek, to search, to find, to save lost people. People that he values big time. Now, before Jesus teaches the lost and found parables, Luke opens up with a couple of verses that gives us some context. Look at it with me, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And what you will notice in the opening verses is there are two camps of people that Jesus will be teaching these parables to. You have the sinners, the tax collectors, that are eager to hear what he has to say. And you have the religious ones, you know, the Pharisees who are mocking Jesus. There he is, hanging with the sinners, even eats with them. They were often bothered, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, by Jesus. Because Jesus often hung out with the sinners. In fact, one of the uh, instances in which they're probably referencing here can be found in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is traveling with his disciples by boat to the port city of Capernaum. And when they arrive there, they most likely have to pay a port tax and and they're they're going to the tax collector booth there. And it's when Jesus comes face to face with Matthew at the time as a tax collector, he would later become Matthew, the apostle. Now you have to understand, in Jesus' time, tax collectors were despised. They were looked at as the lowest form of sinners. They were Jewish men that worked for the Roman government for the sole purpose of taxing the Jewish people. A portion would go to the Roman officials to keep them happy, but they had a lot of latitude as to what they would keep for themselves, and often they profited on the back of the Jewish people. They were traitors. They were the lowest form of sinner. And yet Jesus, looking at this tax collector, gives him a personal invitation. Follow me. And Matthew does. He leaves his post, and he follows Jesus. And as Jesus and Matthew and the disciples are walking and talking, Jesus asks, hey, Matthew, can we come over to your house to get a bite to eat? Matthew's like, sure. And then Jesus said, hey, why don't you invite some of your tax collector friends, some, some of your sinner friends, and Matthew does. Now, Matthew, likely being a man of means, I envision he had a courtyard behind his house. And I envision Jesus and the disciples, Matthew and his sinner friends, sitting out back, having a bite to eat, having a time of fellowship. But the plot thickens because the Pharisees can see them. You know, it's like that ominous music plays, dun to dun anytime you hear the Pharisees in the gospel. There, there, there he is, they're saying, there's Jesus hanging out with the sinners. They are so bothered by this that they call over one of Jesus' disciples. They would never themselves enter the home of Matthew. Why? They never mingled with sinners. They were above that. And so they call over one of Jesus' disciples, and they say, man, your master bothers us. On one hand, he speaks of the righteousness of God. On the other hand, he hangs out with these lives. What's up with that? And Jesus, knowing exactly what's going on, he sees the commotion, he goes out, and he looks the Pharisees in the eyes, and he says these words, Matthew 9, 12, 13. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is like, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for righteous people like you, you know, people who do no wrong, people who think they don't need any help, people who do not need God's plan of redemption, people who think they can earn and work their way to God. Check, 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 check it off the list, they're obedient. He said, I didn't come for people like you, not because, by the way, that God doesn't love them, he does. And it's not because they don't need them, they do. It's because they don't think they need him. Big difference. Jesus, I didn't come for people like you. I came for sinners, people that are spiritually lost, and they know it. The Pharisees kind of shake their heads and walk away, and here we are in the opening of chapter 15 in Luke, and there are those two camps the sinners who know they've done wrong and are eager to hear what Jesus has to say, and the Pharisees, the religious elite that do no wrong and are mocking him. And in response to both the naysayer and those sinners that are eager to hear what he has to say, Jesus teaches the lost and found parables of the gospel. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, in the parable of the lost son, better known as the parable of the prodigal son. Pick up the passage, verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one person who knows they're a sinner and comes to God in Christ than 99 righteous people that think they don't need him. There's more rejoicing than that, in heaven, over one, than 99. He goes to the next parable. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Picture it. It's the end of the day. The shepherd is counting his sheep. 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. He notices one's missing, and off he goes, trying to find that sheep that carries a lot of value. He's looking in between the shrubs. He's looking in the thickets. He's looking over the hillside. He's looking for some time. And when he finds that sheep, he carries it back home. And did you notice what Jesus said he did? He called his friends. He called his neighbors. And he had a little celebration. Why? Because that which was lost that carried a lot of value to him was now found worthy of a celebration. And then Jesus tells of that woman has 10 silver coins. And she loses one. Commentary writers would tell us that that coin is called a drachmutz. The equivalent of a day's wages. And this is not a woman of means. That's a lot of money. And she tore that house apart trying to find that coin. She looked under the bed, in between the sofa cushions, in the junk drawer. She looked high, she looked low, she looked everywhere. And when she finally found that coin, did you catch what she did? She did what the shepherd did. She called over her friends, her neighbors. She had a little celebration. Rejoice with me. Why? Well, it's obvious. Because that which was lost, that carried a lot of value for her, had now been found worthy of a celebration. And then Jesus goes into the third parable, probably one of the most recognizable parables in the Gospels, the parable of the prodigal son. I'll paraphrase the first part of it, and then we'll dive into the passage, but it's about a father and two of his sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son does something unthinkable in the first century Middle Eastern culture. He asks for his inheritance early. And the reason why that's unthinkable is because it it was very disruptive to the family. You see, they didn't just have a pile of cash sitting around. It would require them to liquidate property and livestock. It it was disruptive to the family. But it was also unthinkable because it was disrespectful to the father. It's almost like saying, I wish you were dead so I can get my inheritance early. Unthinkable. But the father in the parable does what no human father in this culture at this time would have done. He agrees to give the younger son the inheritance early. He sees the best in his son, and when he gives him the inheritance early, the son looks at him and says, Father, I no longer want to live under your rules. I'm out of here, and he goes to a far-off land, and he lives a prodigal life. Your Bible translation may say that, or it may say wild life. It's a life without restraint. He partied. Women, wine, song, the whole nine yards. He was having the time of his life until, of course, the money ran out and his supposed friends disappeared. He's broke. He's all alone. And then Jesus adds attention to the story. He says a famine runs over the land. If you thought he had it bad before, he really had it bad now. He was destitute. He was desperate. He was broke. He's all alone. He's scared. And out of his desperation, he goes to the local pig handler, and he begs for a job, and he gets a job feeding pigs. And as he's covered in mud feeding slop to these pigs, he begins to remember how good he had it when he was with his father. Jesus said he was so hungry that he began to want the food he was feeding the pigs. And then he thought, my father's servants have it so much much better than I have it today. he settled it. I'm going back to my dad's house. He was humiliated, but with an incredibly humbled heart, he realized how he messed up. He begins to journey back to his father, most likely thinking his dad's just going to slam the door on him. We'd all understand that for what he did. And so he began to rehearse. Father, I'm no longer worthy Be called your son if you could only make me one of your servants. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son if you could only make me one of your servants. He's journeying back. Pick up the passage with me. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and get this, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Verse 21, the son, rehearsing what he was about to say, said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Before he could even get out. But if you could just make me one of your servants. The father interrupts him, doesn't even hear what his son is saying, and he yells out commands to his servants. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. It's a sign of royalty." Put a ring on his finger. It's a signet ring. It it represented a line of credit backed by the name of the father. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, what do each of these three parables have in common? They all end with a celebration. Why? Because that which was lost, that carried a lot of value to the one who lost it, It was now found worthy of a celebration. Now, anytime we see a parable, read a parable in the Bible you want to ask this question, who am I and who is God? And in these parables, God is represented by the one who is searching and seeking and finding and saving that which was lost. You and I, in fact, every human being in the world, whether you know it or not, is represented by that which had been lost. The sheep, the coin, the prodigal son. You see, friends, the Bible's pretty clear that apart from Jesus Christ, we're spiritually lost. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. We fall short of his glory. In other words, we're not perfect. That's all that means. I mean, if you think you're perfect, you've got a problem. Just ask the person to your left or to to your right. They'll tell you. We all fall short. And if we're real honest with ourselves, we have a hard time living up to our own standards, let let alone an all-good, loving, just, powerful, perfect God. See, apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible's pretty clear. We're spiritually lost. And when you're spiritually lost, You lose some things. I like how Rick Warren, pastor and author, put this some years ago. I paraphrase it. But when you're spiritually lost, you lose some things. You lose your sense of direction in life. And you kind of wander through life aimlessly, wondering what is the meaning, what is the purpose of life. And I think the older we get, the more pronounced that question becomes. When you're spiritually lost, you lose your sense of direction. You know what else you lose? You lose your protection. Think of that sheep. When it was all alone, it was vulnerable to attacks from predators, but not so when it was in the arms of the shepherd. If you're living life thinking, man, I don't need God, I'm just gonna make decisions based on my wisdom and my perspective, no matter how limited it is. And I'm just going to make decisions based on what I want to do. Listen, if that's you, you're no longer under the protection of God. You know, so many people think God is the ultimate killjoy. And they'll say, he doesn't want me to enjoy life. And they'll point to the commandments. Do this and don't do that. Doesn't want me enjoying life. But it's the furthest thing from the truth. As the Apostle John says, God's commandments flow out of a heart of love. For you and for me. They're never meant to harm us. They're always meant to help us. In fact, they're meant to protect us. You say protect us from what? Protect us from a life that's filled in the end with regret. So you lose some things when you're spiritually lost. Number three, you lose your potential. When you read Ephesians 2.10, it tells us that God has designed good works for each of us individually to do in this world, for your good and for his glory. And we read that God has gifted each of us with spiritual gifts to help us do those very good deeds. He's got a plan for your life. He's got purpose and meaning for your life, but if we're separated And not in communion with him, because we're not connected to Jesus Christ, we lose our full potential. And you know what else we lose? Finally, we lose peace. It's all all the other three relate to this one. Think of that prodigal son. He looked at his dad and said, Dad, I'm out of here. I don't want to live under your rules. I want to live for me, myself, and I. And off he went. And in the end, it severed relationships, and it left him empty. It left him scared. He had no lasting peace. You see, when we're we're spiritually lost, we lose some things. We lose our direction, our protection, our potential, our peace. But here's the good news. And it's the whole meaning of the parables that you never lose your value in the eyes of God. He values every human life. No matter what we've done, where we've been, the things we've said, no matter the things that are in our past, no matter how imperfect we are, He values every single one of us. And if we could just do what that prodigal son did, realize, man, I've made a mess. I've made some poor choices. And humble ourselves. And go back to the Father, our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. Our God will do exactly what that father in the prodigal son story did. He'll embrace us. He'll be so happy we come to him. And you know what? He'll treat us like royalty. He'll bring us into his kingdom. He'll give you his name. You're an ambassador of the living God. You represent him. You're a child of the living God. God, hear me, there is nothing like the grace of God found in and through the cross of Jesus. There is nothing like it in the world. It is, in fact, amazing. Now, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you next. Can you imagine that God's grace bothers people. It bothers some people. You know who it bothers? People that think they're perfect. People that think they do no wrong. People like the Pharisees. There he is. Hanging with the sinners. He even eats with them. And anytime they saw Jesus showing compassion to people that on the outside didn't look so holy, it bothered the Pharisees. You know what also bothered? The older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We're not done with that parable. And Jesus, being the master storyteller that he is, gives hope to the sinner sitting at his feet. And now he pivots, and he's talking to the Pharisees, the people that think they are righteous. They don't sin. They don't need a help. They don't need a savior. And he does it by bringing in this older brother into the story. Look at how the older brother responds to the father's grace given to the younger son. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now there's no doubt the older brother is embellishing a little bit. He always obeyed. you catch that? You never gave me a calf. By the way, Jesus never mentions prostitutes in the story about his younger brother. But he is obviously ticked, and every one of us kind of gets it. Right? I mean, how would you feel if you were the older brother? Would you be glad... Or would you be mad? Would you be glad that he, your, your younger brother is back safe and sound, even though he lived a less than stellar life? Or would you be mad thinking, he's a loser? I mean, he did the unthinkable. He, he disrupted the whole family. Can I have my inheritance early? You know, Can you imagine that? And my father was foolish enough To give him the money and go figure. He wasted it. These geniuses, of course, he's gonna waste it. Man, we worked so hard for that. And he just blows it. And then he comes crawling back. I need help. I need help, you know. And then on top of it, my father throws him a party. He is ticked, he is angry. Would you be mad? Would you be glad? Well, the older brother's response reveals his heart. It's a heart hardened by righteousness. I'm so good. He's so bad. I deserve reward. He deserves punishment. No, no, worse. He he deserves not even to be accepted into the family. Get him out of here. And how, what we see in the older brother's response, the older son's response, is a son who certainly on the outside looks so much better than the younger son. That's obvious. But he's a son that was obedient to the father, not out of love for the father, but out of obligation and out of duty I don't know if you caught it, but when he was yelling at his dad, he said this, I have been slaving for you all these years. A slave is in bondage. He didn't obey the father out of a love for the father. It was out of duty and obligation. Author and pastor, Dr. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, it's a book about this passage, said this, and I quote, even though the older brother was religious, he was just as spiritually dead as the one who ran away. He may have appeared on the outside to be the better son to the father, but he was just as rotten to the core. Both sons were living without purpose, but in different ways. Both abandoned their father's love and purpose for their lives. One was a religionist and the other was a wild, hard-partying child. Both were lost. Both tried to save themselves, but only the prodigal son let his father save and restore him to his purpose. You know how? By admitting... He did wrong by humbling himself and going back to the dad and saying, I need help. I need a savior. The older brother never thought he did wrong. And you know what happens to people that never think they do wrong? People that think they're perfect, never sin. they never experience the beautiful, unbelievable, incomprehensible grace of God found in and through the cross of Jesus. And listen, when you don't receive it, you can't give it. That's why the Pharisees said, there he is again, Hanging with the sinners. And that's why the older brother in the parable was so angry at the father for showing compassion to the son. Well, in response to the objections of the older brother, the father responds, verse 31, as we close this passage out. My son said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Just let me stop there. God loves everyone. He values everyone. The question is, do we pursue him? He always pursues us. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father doubles down on what he did. It's like Jesus said in that parable, the parable of the lost sheep. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, says, I need a Savior, and comes to God through Christ. The 99 righteous people that look so good that their arrogance keeps them from God's grace found in God. Well, that's the parable, the entire 15th chapter in the book of Luke. And again, one of my favorite passages, why? Because it gives us a glimpse into the very heart of God and how he sent his son on a rescue mission into this world to seek, search, find, save, ultimately to change lost people people that he values big time. I close with, with this. There's, there's a period of time between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's known as the Dark Ages, 400 years. Scholars would call it 400 years of silence from God. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. There were no prophets, There were no, thus saith the Lord. People began to think, is God mad? Does he not care? Does he have nothing else to say? And then into this silence comes a baby's cry. Jesus in a manger. And if I were God, I would have not broke the silence of 400 years with a human cry. I mean, I would have given a speech to end all speeches, a declaration to end all declarations, but not God. He breaks the silence of 400 years with a human cry. Louis Giglio, some years ago, in one of his passion conferences, said this about God breaking the silence It's a human cry, and I quote, I think it was God saying in the very beginning that the earth that I'm coming to is broken, that the people I'm coming to are weeping, that the world I'm coming to is weary, and I want you to know that I, God, I identify with your brokenness, and I identify with your weeping, And I identify with your weariness. The very first sound after 400 years of silence is a human cry. Emmanuel, God is with us. Darkness pierced by the light of the world. Friends, God sent his son Jesus into this world to seek, search, to find, and to save sinners, lost people. Why? Because he values you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. He values all of us. And that is news worthy of a celebration. See, the question, friends, I leave you with is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? He is the joy of the world. And if you've never put your faith and trust in him, I pray today would be the day. And if you maybe have walked back on your faith and you feel like you're far away from God, come to him in Christ. He is the prodigal son's dad. He awaits us with open arms. And he'll restore us into his kingdom. His grace is amazing. There is nothing like it on the face of this planet. And that is news worthy of a celebration. Let's pray. Father God, you are just so good to us. And when we look at a passage like this, Lord, it just humbles humbles us your grace is incredible your love for us is incredible the fact that you value every human soul is incredible and father may we just feel that grace no matter where we all are on our journey to you, my prayer is that we would feel your love and your grace and that that would move us closer to you in Christ Jesus and that you would do an incredible work in our individual lives so we can totally feel your presence, feel that love, and demonstrate faith by showing it in this world, you're an awesome God. We thank you for all that you do in and through this body of believers, and we pray for your presence to be upon us individually and corporately in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pat. At this time, I would like to invite the ushers forward to.